Good morning. We, uh, we continue this um, brief, but I hope powerful ser- sermon series on worship. And last week, we just, what is it, right? We talked about that, tried to define it biblically. And uh, today we're going to talk about the, the why of worship. Why, why do we do this? Because we're always worshiping something. So why, do we, why should we be intentional about worshiping God? And I'm going to give you a quote to get in your head, then we'll pray, and then we'll read some scriptures. Um, the, and I say we'll read some scriptures. The, the New Testament's really clear on what happens to us if we allow ourselves to be polluted by the world. Um, James 1.17, we'll read that in a moment. But um, what we don't often get or understand is how subtle things are that want to own us. So want to pull us away, want to uh, change, put a smudge on our lens, so to speak, so that we see and are interested in, are concerned about things that aren't first of God. So here's the quote. We did a whole sermon series entitled this uh, uh, 10 years ago. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything, you put anything alongside of the gospel, Paul would say that that is the doctrine of demons. Um, we don't usually think in those terms anymore, but, but it, it, is, it is very important as Christians to be perpetually reminding ourselves that God is God and we aren't. But whenever we take something of God and we put something else alongside it, it kind of tries to make it of equal value, and it's not. It can't be. And as soon as we add something to or put something alongside, or if we take something from the gospel, Jesus minus anything equals nothing. So the truth, the way, the life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And worship in our day-to-day lives, in our personal devotions, in how we behave toward others, in, in how we treat our enemy, whether they be people that we know or people that we see on the television or on YouTube or whatever else, Um, And when we gather together, it changes our view and makes it so that we see God first and everything else second. So Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Jesus minus anything, if he is not really born of a virgin, if he didn't really walk the earth, if he didn't really die, if he didn't really go into into, into the earth and then resurrect, and if he didn't ascend to the Father, we lose everything. Paul is very clear when he says that I resolve to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. In other words, to know nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's a person and a message and salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we remind ourselves again that you're God and we're not. We ask you simply to speak to us today. We know that when we worship, we magnify you. But Lord, we need your grace, your mercy, your word and your commands to know how to even do that. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So everyone has a different view of different of, of, of kind of famous pastors. And so I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not saying, an, I'm not giving an endorsement of this guy, although I do, I do like his stuff, um, more in his writing than in his um, spoken teaching. But John Piper, he addresses a, a word we use for worship or something we do in worship um, that's always confused me. Magnify the Lord. Never understood that because how can you make God look bigger than he is? Right? That's what, that's what it means. To, you have a magnifying glass that makes something look bigger so people like me with old eyes now can read more clearly. I have those little readers, the 1.50. Put those on. They magnify the words on a page. But John Piper says it like this. We are not called to be microscopes, but telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality when they know their competitor's product is far superior. There is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. So to magnify God, Lynn gave me a quote this week. Um, I don't remember. It was in your class about the stars. But have you ever been out, if you've ever been camping or deer hunting's coming up, you're outside, you're in the woods, there's no street lights, there's no light pollution, and it's a clear night, usually pretty crisp in October, and you walk outside, and you look up, and you see the myriad of stars. They're all over the place. Have you ever looked at all those stars and went, wow, I sure am something? Of course not. There's one movie character named Zaphod Beeblebrox from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that did but it, 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 it that, that, that takes unbelievable ego, unbelievable arrogance, unbelievable hubris to think when you see the vastness of space and just how we can see it with the naked eye from earth, the hubris it would take to think that that tells me how amazing I am. But if you flip that a little bit, it kind of does. Who is God or who is man, who is humanity that God would be mindful of us? The God who put every star in the sky, who, who for thousands of light years, light can travel to us. The, and, 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 and we and all the planets in the universe, the visited planet, the one where God showed up is here. And he showed up because we, you, me, us, we are so dear to him that he wants us to recognize who he is so that we can figure out how we live. And it's not just therapeutic, moralistic deism. It's not just how to, a, a, a set of moral advice that we just try to do better so we can be a good person. It has, it, that's not it. It's to be a transformed person. So here's some warnings from the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself over and over and over again, John. And I always thought that seemed kind of arrogant, but I think what he's doing is he's trying to get you and me, when we read the scriptures to refer to ourselves not as Trent the preacher or Lynn the prayer or Doug the actor, he used to do theater, but as the beloved one, the one God loves. John has some advice. You might call them warnings for us. Um, so it's going to sound negative, but we'll, get, we'll, we'll, make a, we'll make an arc to make it a little bit, feel a little bit nicer. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, we often, as Christians, when we talk about the world, we often, it's them. There's us and there's them. That is not how the Gospel of John defines it. That is not how 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John define it. It's not how God defines it. Because God loved the world. He so loved the world. It's a system of thought that isn't first and primarily convinced that God is God and Jesus was sent to redeem it, or to redeem the world. Any, any system of thought, any worldview that doesn't see that as primary means whatever it thinks, whatever it teaches, whatever it is, it's secondary at best. And God is not okay with his people saying, yes, God's in the mix. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 5, he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then James. <clears throat> I love the book of James. I know that Martin Luther didn't like the book of James much at all because it seems like it's a works-based faith. And it, just, it isn't. But it, there has to be a human response to anything that Jesus does. And so he does not impose himself upon us. He allows us to choose to voluntarily submit our will to him or to keep living as the world lives. And that is for self and not for other. James 1.17 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, let's just ask ourselves a couple of questions. In what way do you look more like the system of thought, the worldview, that is not first and foremost submitting itself to God? In other words, in what way have I, have you, been polluted by the world? Are there things, are there thought processes, are there attitudes, are there behaviors that look more like someone who does not know God than someone who does? And I'll remind you of the mantra that we talked about when we were in 1 Corinthians, that when the attitudes, the agendas, the beliefs and behaviors of the world look like the attitudes, agendas, beliefs, and behaviors of the church, something's wrong with the church. So worship aligns us with God. It doesn't get God on our side. It gets us on his.
Now, there's a passage in the Psalms, and those of you who know me well know that I, I have a real hard time with the Psalms. Um, and that's not, that's a confession. It's not a, it's not a, I have a problem with the words of the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are so intimate, it feels like I stumbled across my wife's prayer journal and decided to read it. It just feels like I'm, I'm reading someone else's love letter, and it just feel, it feels uncomfortable to me. I have to do it because it's scripture, but it, that there's, that, there's that connection to God that it seems like that belongs between, say, David and God, but God has chosen to let us step into it, and we're going to step into one today. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 6, trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Now, I want to I highlight those last couple of things first. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. This is what he'll do. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Notice the order it comes in. This is the why of worship. It doesn't say, be righteous and shine like the dawn and rejoice and, and, the justice, and, and, and make the justice of your cause shine like the noonday sun, thereby committing yourself to the Lord. It's not how it works. See, if worship is for me, I'm not worshiping God. If I come to a gathering of God's people and I want to be moved by the worship, then I have not worshiped God. I might be worshiping the musicians. I might be worshiping a genre of music. I might be worshiping the ability of a communicator to move me emotionally. And none of us will say, oh yeah, I, I, I worship this, I worship that. I wor but it doesn't mean, whether we admit it or not, doesn't mean anything. It's like saying, I don't believe in air. Well, that doesn't make air any less real. If I'm worshiping for my sake, I get no benefit. In fact, it pulls me away from God. But if I worship God for his sake, if I'm going to be a telescope and I'm going to see the majesty of all that God is and realize how small I am, but... I'm reminded that God is mindful of me, that I matter to God, not that God matters to me. I start with God matters to me, and a benefit that may come from that is recognizing that the God of the universe adores me. But I first must adore God. That has to be my primary focus. And then this, this, this one in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, there are some of those name it and claim it people that, that use this verse, and they say, see, God wants you to live your best life. He wants you to have what you want. He wants you to be successful and happy and glorious, and everything's going to work out for you as long as you delight yourself in the Lord. That's not what this means. It's what it sounds like in English, but delighting yourself in the Lord is worshiping God. It's being perpetually amazed at God's goodness and His greatness. And then it says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean that you get what you want? If I'm delighting myself in the Lord and I want a newer bass boat, come on, Lord. I don't, by the way. The one I have is awesome. 
Is it possible that delighting yourself in the Lord, he'll grant you your desires? Yeah, but it's kind of a genie in a bottle idea. See, the, the why of worship is not that it changes God, but that it changes you. Not on your terms, but on God's. That's someone very upset a few months ago that wrote a, wrote a very lengthy email and said that, you know, the letter that we wrote to the congregation about this and that, um, there was no grace in it. There was no grace in it. It's all truth, no grace. We got to show more grace. Okay, they meant kindness. And there's a point there. Yeah, we, we could have we worded some things a little bit differently. But the only person, the only being in the universe that can give grace is God through the person of Jesus Christ. I can't give, I cannot give you what you do not deserve. God can. Salvation. But he gives it if we come to him on his terms, not on ours. And the world, the system of thought that is against or that, that it doesn't have God as primary, asks us to make a decision to love God if he gives me the desires of my heart. To love God if he does this for me. And to doubt God if he doesn't. But what this passage says, delight yourself in the Lord, worship God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So that he will change what desires are in your heart. He will place in your heart his desires from you. Do you remember the passage in Genesis 22 when Abraham was asked or was commanded to sacrifice his son? Do you remember that, that passage with Isaac? As they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to his dad, I see the fire and I see the knife, but where's the, where's the, the ram for the burnt offering? And it's ambiguous in the grammar. But Abraham says to his son, the Lord himself will provide the, will provide the sacrifice, my son. And we don't know if he's saying, hey, kid, God's got this, or if he's saying, and the sacrifice is my son. See, it's ambiguous in the English. It's ambiguous in the Hebrew on purpose. And this delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, is the same. We read that, and we think, God's going to give me something if I do this. It's, a, it's, a, it's some kind of a currency exchange that I hand him my best money, and he gives me that which I'm desiring. So it's a purchase. And folks, if you have that in your mind, I'm just going to ask you to reconsider. Because that means you're worshiping God for you. But what if God wants to give you new desires? What if God wants to place on your heart the things of God and not the things of this world? What if, by worshiping God, he renews your heart? He changes your spirit. And he brings purpose back to living. I used this illustration. We'll close pretty quickly after this. But I used this illustration a couple months ago. But I could not... It, it came to me that morning. I could not remember the name of the author, and I didn't get the story exactly right. It's close if it sounds familiar, but now I've got someone to give credit to. James Michener, in his book, The Source, which is kind of a historical fiction in the 2200 B.C. Woo-hoo! 
I'll just read it. The source tells the story of a man named Erbal, who was a farmer living in 2200 BC, and he worshiped two gods, one the god of death, and the other a goddess of fertility. One day, the temple priests tell Erbal to bring his young son to the temple for sacrifice if he wants to have good crops that year. Erbal obeyed. And on the appointed day, he drags his wife and his boy to the scene of the boy's religious execution by fire to the god of death. After the sacrifice of Erbal's boy and, and, uh, Erbal's boy and, the, and several others, the priest came to all the dads and, and to announce that one of the fathers will get to spend the next week in the temple with a temple prostitute. Erbal's wife was stunned as she noticed a desire written more intensely across his face, her husband's face, than she had ever seen before. And she is overwhelmed to see him eagerly lunge forward when his name is the one that's called. The ceremony over, she walks out of the temple with her head swimming, and she concluded this, if he had different gods, he would be a different man. You know who your gods are by what you get excited for. What you anticipate and look forward to, what brings you anxiety if it's not going to work out the way you want. If we as Christians believe that we don't have anything to do with quote unquote the world, then look at the worries of this world and see if they're your worries. Because if you'll remember in Luke, when Jesus gives the parable of the seed and the sower, and he talks about some falls on hard ground, and some falls into the thicket when the thistles grow up, and you know what he calls those, thick, those thistles that grow up? The worries of the world. So I am not condemning anyone. It is my responsibility as a minister of the church of Christ to call us to worship God and not the stuff of earth. So I'm asking you, between you and God, you individually, and if you want to after that as a couple, if you're married, if you have a, a, a good, secure attachment with someone, to look around, look in your own heart, and if you find something, if the worries of this world if the stuff of earth, if you as a Christian match in some way the anxieties, the agendas, the behaviors of the beliefs of the world, confess it. Repent of it. And ask God to give you a new heart. Remember that the passage we, we read last week said, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then you'll be able to know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you, as a believer, follower of Jesus, do you not want to know what God's will is? Of course you do. So we give all of ourselves to God all the time. Impossible, yes, but more and more as we see the day approaching. If you had different gods, you would be a different person. And because we have the one true God, he will change our hearts and minds. We will be renewed. We will be transformed by the renewing of our minds.
So why worship? Because God changes you. But if you come for the change, you're not worshiping God. See how insidious that is? Remember when Jesus says, if you want to gain your life or save your life, what do you have to do? Lose it. If you want to be the, 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 the highest of all, you have to become the least of all. If you want worship to change you, confess that to God. Lord, I want worship to be for me. It will change you, but only if it's about God. If it's first about you, you're not worshiping God. But if you had a different God, you'd be a different person. So if God gets your allegiance, if, he, if you show up to a gathering on a Sunday morning and you're like, I cannot wait to tell God how big he is, how glorious he is, how wonderful he is. I can't wait to make a defiant, a defiant step against everything that's not of God and say, today I will serve the Lord. That is worship. Anything less than that is nothing. So we worship because God is who he claims to be. And he may give us a benefit, but if we seek the benefit first, we're worshiping ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Even though I don't like this, I know in my gut, in my heart, and in my mind that it's true. I want to be consumed by the desires and worries and the passions of everything that comes natural to me. But you call us to do what, not what comes natural to me, but to come, do what comes natural to you. So, Lord, as we delight ourselves in you in song and in prayer, and even when we talk about the, the, the concerns and the needs in our community, Lord, give us new desires in our hearts. Change who we are because we acknowledge who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name who gave his life for us. Amen.